Welcome back to Random Book Club Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Van. Today we're reading chapters two and three of The Aeronauts Windless by Jim Butcher, and I'm joined by indie author Justin Mason. How you doing, bro? I'm doing great, Dan. We're back with The Aeronauts Windless. Hey, some, uh, some exciting stuff for this week. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, we're back in it. Well, let's just get right into it, eh? Absolutely. Jumping into chapter two. AMS Predator. So we're on uh, the Albion merchant ship Predator. Summary. Yep. Grim stood firm as journeyman cut the power to the lift crystal suspension rig, and Predator dropped from the sky like a stone. So we are just right after chapter one. We are in it now. We are doing the thing. Yeah, we're right into the fight. And that's the one thing I love about the pacing in this book is when you're in a fight, you're in a damn fight. And he, this is cool. He has dedicated a whole chapter to it, you know? Mm-hmm. Love it. An attack dive was a small vessel's maneuver. The actual fall would inflict little damage on a vessel of any size, but the sudden reduction of speed on the far end of the dive could be a severe strain upon her timbers. Larger ships, with the far their far heavier armor, suffered more from such pressures. And in order to decelerate slowly to return to, nor- to the normal level of engagement effectively... Uh, I read that wrong, but basically it takes them longer to go back to normal level if they're a larger yep. ship. Mm-hmm. A truly efficient combat dive required a brief, severe period of reduction in speed, and Grimm had read accounts of battleships and dreadnoughts that had attempted a dive only to have their lift crystals tear themselves entirely free of the ship when attempting to arrest their descent too rapidly. Sane Damn. captains rarely try to combat dive in anything heavier than a light cruiser, but for a relatively tiny destroyer-sized ship like Predator, the dangerous feat dwelled at the heart of battle doctrine. So, we start the chapter off with the attack dive, and we learn a couple uh, things about the pros and cons of uh, the various ship types. So, in this one attack dive, he's describing, we're learning about like the lift crystals and and that kind of stuff, and then we're also talking about different size airships we got the cruiser type we got the big dreadnought you know huge ship type and so um, this type of dive was rarely used by bigger ships like the auroran ship they're currently that is currently being dived upon by predator so that auroran ship that they're going after that they spotted from the sky that's a huge ship so this is like like they said it's part of um predator's battle doctrine like this is how they roll well, you know, yeah, and this is one thing that I really enjoy, right, about everything we're experiencing here is when we read about the Predator the first time, it's like, well, it's a weaker vessel. It doesn't have necessarily the armors or the big guns or any of that stuff, but it does have manual sails. It can do a battle dive, and at the end of the chapter, we find out something else that it is able to do that the bigger ship probably won't be able to get away with. Absolutely. So um, we also learn about um, the lift crystals being torn out of heavy ships at the end of a dive. Um, I like the idea of learning more about how these crystals work and the mechanics of how the ships work. So you got your core crystal and you got your lift crystal and like we're talking about it during these dives. Let me let me tell you what this is. This is a way for Jim to do an info dump without doing an info dump because he could have just started the book at the start and dropped all the information about crystals, all the stuff about how 
houses, ships, all this other shit, right? He could have just done it all at the start, giving you one chapter of everything you need to know. He could have easily done that. It would have been boring as fuck, but it would have been really, but it would have been really important, right? Yeah. So instead of doing that, what does he do? He intersperses it. First chapter, we learn there's some important high-ranking houses. Second chapter, we learn there's some ships and some, you know, some. You know, some different sized ships. You got armor. They got cannons. They got webbing. They got shields. They got all this shit. Oh, they got crystals, lift crystals. Okay. So we're learning all this stuff as we're reading. Instead of getting an info dump, it's just good writing. And that's why it keeps you interested. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so as the Predator continues its dive onto the Auroran vessel, Predator bucks and jolts as they gain speed. Now we get an amazing spin on airships in relation to the specific noise they make when dive maneuver when they're making dive maneuvers like this just when Love you it. thought airships in the aeronauts when this was cool it just got cooler it got cool. so here's uh the passage from the book because it was like when i read it i'm like this is awesome yeah this part i remembered this part this part was cool the auroran grew larger and larger and the sound of the predator's straining timbers continued to rise in tone and volume all ships made their own individual sounds during a dive, though no one was sure precisely why. Grimm's midshipman's tour had been aboard a destroyer named the Speck. It had howled like a demon soul when it stooped upon a victim. Other ships wailed like enormous steam whistles. Still others took up regular pounding rhythm, like the beating of some vast drum. Once Grimm had been aboard the light cruiser Furious, and which literally boomed out enormous snarls as it charged into combat. But his ship outdid them all. When Predator sailed into war, she sang. The rapid winds and rising shrieks suddenly blended into a single harmonious tone. Lines in the rigging in the yards and the masts themselves quivered in time and began giving off their own notes of music in harmony with one another. As the speed increased, the cord rose and rose and built and built until it reached a crescendo of pure, eerie, inhuman fury. Grimm felt the music rise around him, felt the ship straining eagerly to her task, and his own heart raced in fierce exultation in time with her. Every line of the ship, every smudge upon her decks, every strain upon the leathers of his aeronauts, of his aeronauts leapt into his mind in the vibrant detail. He could feel the ship's motion, forward and down, could feel the wind of her passage, could feel the rising terror in his crew. One of the man's men screamed, one of them always did, and then the entire crew joined in with Predator, shrieking their battle cries together with their ships. I was like, hell yeah, dude! That was really cool. Yeah, I really liked it. What did you think about the spin here on... You know, we've heard about airships. You know, we've played Final Fantasy. They always have airships. So you got the the typical fare, and we learn about, you know, these ships in this world where they have lift crystals and stuff, and like, that's unique, and, you know, they use steam engines or whatever. But now we get this, where ships will make a noise when they do an attack dive specifically. What do you think about that? Well, you know... You put all that pressure onto something, right? And remember, anything that is built by hand will have slight imperfections and differences to something else of the same style. So I always think about that like, okay, well, we have the Predator ship. It's, it's smaller, not as fancy. But when it drops, it sings, 
it makes noises. Then you have these bigger ships. When they drop, maybe they howl, maybe they, maybe they, you know, maybe they uh, bellow or whatever it is. So I, I like that we get a little. They're giving character to a non-living thing, and I really like that personification. I think it's called. It's very. Uh, it is really unique in this sense. Because you almost, for just a second, believe it's a living, breathing ship. Yeah, it may even be really anthropomorphism a little bit. Mm, well, maybe not. Sure. It's probably personification because some of them do yeah. beating drums and stuff. This one sings, so yeah. that's more of a... But you, but you know, like an airship can't beat drums. Yeah, an no, it's cool. And you just imagine, you know, like, okay, all these other ships, like, what sounds do they make? You know, the one that yeah. beats the drums, like, how does it make that sound? Like, the... The timbers and the and the ropes are like slapping against the mass. It's like boom, 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 yeah, boom, yeah. boom, boom, boom. You know, and then I think to myself, are we going to get to see that later in the book, maybe with another ship as we get meet some new characters coming up? You know, will they have to do an attack dive, and how will their ship sound? Will their ship sing? Will it howl? Will it bellow? Will it drum? Will it thunder? You know, what will we get, and what kind of ship will that be? So I'll be interested to see if this comes up again. Yeah. So you I know, wrote. A I, I, I wrote a little blurb on that that I wanted to talk about. So sure, um, sure. I really appreciate um, as a differentiation of this book as considered other steampunk setting books. When reading any book in a genre of sci-fi or fantasy, the setting is very well established to people in general. Magic in fantasy and spaceships in sci-fi. But what gets me excited when I read is the unique take on those established archetypes. So that's like, you know, every magic book and fantasy book, you know what you're getting into. It's going to be magic, maybe elves, dwarves, but how do they do it differently? Do you know what I mean? And that's what I get excited about when I'm reading books. So what Jim does, he does a great job of not only introducing us to the idea of crystals in the use of sort of a catch-all energy source, like um, for the weapons, ships, and spires, which is cool enough in a de departure from norms, you know, but it also adds the singing ship stuff that gives identity to the airships like you were talking about. So Very important. Um, now when you hear a ship name, you know there's also going to be an extra lore component and what kind of noise it makes. And for me, I love this because it makes me try to think of correlations and deep dives, of course. So, for instance, it's stated that his first example of the sound of ships made uh, that the light cruiser Furious that Grimm had been on board boomed and snarled out as it charged into combat. So this makes some sense. Furious and snarls, you know? It's a good character. And now we have the Albion merchant ship Predator who sings. So what does that imply? You know, it's a it's the Predator and it sings. So it's, it's cool. It starts to make you think, you know? Um, so I if really... If you want to go deep, you can go deep. If you want to take it at face value, you can also take it at face value. Yeah, it's just cool as, cool as that, man. So... The dive continued as they got closer to their target. Captain Grimm could feel the right moment to rise, raise his hand and, as an indication to Kettle to return the altitude throttle from zero back to neutral buoyancy. Below decks, Journeyman and his assistants would be redirecting power from the core crystal back into the lift crystal, slowing the ship down. I like how we get this scene. I think this is the scene I'm thinking of where he gives like a mental overview of he knows everything that's happening even though we can't see it, right? Yep. But he's still telling you. Like it's a, it's a way of telling the reader something that the character whose point of view this is being told from doesn't necessarily uh, 
visually have access to, but he knows, look, these guys know what they're doing. They're doing the crystals. They're man in the deck. They're tying the ropes. Like I know they're doing this. So I'm thinking this. And since he's thinking it, we can see it and we can see the whole thing. Yeah. It's some more of this like kind of secretive info dump. And this one was probably exactly the, what it is. It was probably the most blatant because he was just like, you know, even though like Grim gave the command and even though he can't see it, he knew exactly what was going on in his ship. And then it takes you through his thoughts of like the lift crystal was being turned. The energy was being pushed over somewhere else. And so you got to kind of get a rundown, like little tutorial about how the ship returns back to normal altitude. It is a very clever info dump. Yeah, I liked it. So um, this is from, uh, okay, here we go. Kettle had uh, pulled hard on the steering grips, causing the Predator to spin on her center axis and leave over her, lean over her port side, bringing a good firing angle for the seven etheric cannons to bear on the Auroran ship. Even though Captain Grimm was wearing his dark lens goggles, he still had to wince at the bright flashes of etheric cannon bolts. Here is an explanation from the book on how these etheric cannons work and how Predator stacks up against the Auroran warship. Each cannon was a framework of copper and brass around a copper-clad barrel of steel. A row of weapon crystals was suspended in the exact center of each barrel's length upon her copper wires, and when the weapon was activated, it behaved much in the same manner as a common gauntlet except in far larger scale. The energy of a cannon crystal was added to the outgoing rush of power, and the result was pure destruction. A cannon bolt unleashed massive energy upon impact. A single hit from one of Predator's cannons, if placed precisely the right place, could incinerate most of an unarmored vessel. Seven such weapons turned their fury upon the Auroran ship, targeting the, the tips of her mast, where her etheric web spread out around her. Grim watched intently for the result of the first salvo. In theory, the light cannon aboard Predator could fire a bolt that would strike effectively from nearly two miles away. In practice, it took a steady ship, a steady target, skilled gunners, and no small amount of luck to hit something at more than half a mile. Perhaps more if used, uh, perhaps more if they used the heavier chase gun, Predator's only medium cannon. A light ship's defense was in its agility and speed, and they rarely cruised to stib they rarely cruised stably when they went into battle such cold-blooded trading of fire was for heavier warships armored to withstand multiple hits and carrying weapons 10 times the size of predator's arms so we get some more description of not only the different ship types again but also cannon types allowing us as the reader to get a solid understanding of the mechanics of this world this lets us start to envision based on the, this description, various strategies of combat, but it's not so complex that we can't grasp it. It comes off as like a rock, paper, scissors style. So like you got your small cannons and you got your medium cannons and you got your big ships and you got your small ships. And so he's kind of introducing you to the strategies as they're going in on this attack. And I like that a lot. Grim waits anxiously to see the result of Predator's first broadside salvo. Noting that his gunnery crew were all veteran aeronauts in practice synchronization with Kettle's maneuvers. maneuvers. Not a single crew missed its target, and not a single shot landed. I like that part when they said that. The enemy's shroud, which was powered by its core crystal, blocked all the shots fired. This surprised Grimm because maintaining a shroud was a strain on the ship's core and depleted the core's energy reserve. 
The shots had been had blasted deeply into the Shroud's defensive field, but did no actual damage to the enemy hull. Usually only ships in active combat would energize a Shroud, but it was already active on the Auroran ship, which meant they were expecting a fight. Grimm processed all that, all that just as the Auroran ship sent up a signal flare, and now the trap was revealed to Grimm and his crew. A ship the size of Predator would not survive the salvo the Auroran could send their way. I, I, I really like this scene, right? Because I was sick of myself. What the heck's going to happen? Are they really going to go shoot up this ship and get away with this? And as soon as this started going on, I'm thinking to myself, oh, there's something more here. This is, this is this a, it's a trap. Like, that's what it I'm thinking. It was totally like, a trap. Yeah. Like, that's what I was thinking. Like, I'm like, oh, shit. They just walked. They just triggered my trap card, you know, like. And it and was one, good. One part about this part or one thing about this part that uh, confused me while I was reading is I'm not a ship guy. I've never been on a ship. So I didn't know all the terminology. So I had to look up some of it. And when they're talking about port side and uh, starboard and stuff like that, the basic things you you have to know is port and starboard. And so I'll give you the little the little cheat sheet here. Uh, so basically, when you're thinking about what side is port, if you're just let's imagine that you're on the ship facing to the front of the the front bow okay mm-hmm, port mm-hmm. side is the left side starboard is the right side so how do you remember that starboard has the the letter r in it so right side and port is a four letter word just like left left is a four letter word so nice. port is left starboard is right and there's like I looked up online like how do you memorize that stuff and there's some old captains like sayings that they say like all the port there there's no port left to drink like a port wine or something like that nice. like That's they have is, yeah. they have a lot of um little sayings and stuff but the easiest for me is just that port is four letters left is four letters starboard has an r in it right so that's how I memorized it. And that actually helped me visualize it as they're talking about like kettle turning really hard, pulling on the uh, on the steering wheel and like spinning it on its axis to make sure that the, you know, the port side cannons are aiming at the Aurora and to shoot at it and stuff. It's, it's yeah. pretty cool. So, <clears throat> uh, so this is when the Aurora returns fire. And here's what it says from the book. The deck was nearly bleached away by the flash of light that spilled forth from Predator's Shroud when the Auroran guns spoke. And I I like like that. that. Yeah. That was good. The Auroran guns spoke. Spoke. I loved it. The enemy ship carried 12 light cannon in her broadside to Predator 7. And if they were slightly less powerful individually, the difference was hardly worth noticing. The enemy fire lit up Predator's Shroud like a bank of fog and wiped it away almost before it could be seen. But her shroud held, stopping the worst of the enemy's fire no more than a dozen feet from her hull and bathing the ship in the sharp smell of ozone. Getting smells, you know, getting light, getting imagery, you know. They survived the first attack. Now Grimm orders Kettle to dive into the mists. While doing that, Kettle also turns Predator's starboard side, right side, uh, to the Auroran ship to unleash a second barrage of etheric cannon fire. But this time, the crew performed an old-school gunnery technique called ripple firing. I thought this was so cool. This was banging. Where they, instead of cannons fire, instead of all cannons firing at once, they took turns placing their shots in the exact same place, chewing through the shroud's defensive field much quicker. 
The ripple fire tactic worked as the sixth shot tore through the shroud and the seventh landed a decisive blow to the enemy's hull, sending splinters and a cloud of soot spewing from the exposed belly. The fire that erupted, erupted from the hull shattered the ventral web masts, which is ventral is the underside masts. So like, you know, if it's an airship and it's got masts and shit, there's going to be masts underneath the ship too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And causing significant drag on the ship to make her roll and yaw. Now we're just getting all the fucking terminology, but it's twisting around and, and backing up. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, the yaw is like a vertical axis movement, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, Grim Grim's crew lets out shouts of triumph at the sight. The enemy was far from destroyed, but it was severely lamed. Captain Grimm observed the enemy through his tel- telescopic lens and saw a second explosion, probably from the gauntlet weapons locker. Then he turned his attention to the skies all around in search of a ship that was signaled at the beginning of the ordeal. And then he sees it. From the book. The second vessel rose out of the mist of the mesosphere, murky clouds roiling off her spars and rigging, boiling down off her plated flanks and leaving her armored sides gleaming as she rose into the harsh light of the sun. The banner of the armada of Spire Aurora flew bold from both dorsal and ventral mass, two blue stripes on a field of white, with five scarlet stars spangled between her blue stripes. Across her prow was painted in gold, ASA Itasca. So let me pull out, I took, I made a little picture of this. So there's a, an artist who does like fantasy art and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I made a, a version of this. I sent this to you, Justin. Where the the ASA Itasca ship, where it's got the blue stripes and the scarlet. And I just thought this was like a cool visual. So I'm going to keep this up while I um, read that. But what was the name of that artist? The artist that does this really cool um, art, his name, he's from Poland. We got a Pol- Polski guy here. His name is Jarlos, Jaroslaw Janiszkowski. Jaroslaw Janiszkowski. And um, he makes a lot of like kind of surreal art, really cool stuff. But I just wanted to, I, you know, I basically took one of his images that he made and then just added some Photoshop crap to it. But anyway, so continuing from the book. Staring at her, Grimm felt his bones turn cold. Itasca was a ship of legend with a battle record stretching back more than 500 years. And the Aurorans considered her a fine prize to be given to veteran captains on the fast route of their own admiralty. Grimm couldn't remember her commander's name at the moment, but he knew it'd be one of the Aurora's, Aurorans' best. So, they like... We just we just got dropped on by Hulk Hogan, basically. Oh, boy. Legendary. The Rock just returned at, at uh, WrestleMania yeah. to drop a rock bottom on somebody. <laughs> That's what just happened. And they smelling what's cooking. Yeah. So, you know, this was cool, right? Because we've heard of the trap. So now they breach the they breach the thing they breach the the shield the webbing they get a hit they're celebrating and all of a sudden it's like bum 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 you're like you're like oh fuck these guys are in trouble and it wasn't like an easy it wasn't an easy one they had to do the old school gunnery tactics with their veterans gunners had to be precise get it and the sixth shot of their seven per side their sixth shot broke it and their seventh shot got it so it was like. Yes, you know what I mean? And then we barely like said, made it happen. Yep. Then out from the mist, clouds <laughs> roiling off it, 
Yeah, and now here like, come the veterans, and we're like, oh, oh shit. boy. Like, maybe some of his crew had been on ships just like this before. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. we fought Itasca before. She a big girl. She a big we girl. We gotta go. We gotta get out of here. We gotta go. The Predator <laughs> was in a bad spot. The Itasca was... No a- shit! <laughs> <laughs> the Itasca was a battle cruiser, which was specifically designed to hunt down ships like Grimm's. It had four times the guns, multiple power cores, and could outrun the Predator given enough time. The lucky thing, though, for Grimm and his crew was that the Aurorans didn't expect Kettle's steeper-than-normal dive, so Itasca came out of the mist two miles away. Grimm ordered Kettle to dive now, and just as he thought he had avoided confrontation, the Itasca opened fire. Although Grimm's ship was smaller, the range on the enemy's battlecruiser was much greater and it landed a lucky shot, blowing a hole right through the shroud and tearing down the topside masts. Some shrapnel hit his... hits hit the main crystal on the number three gun, and it exploded, killing the crew and blowing a hole in the side of the ship, sending another aeronaut named Ericsson flying out of the sky. R.I.P. Ericsson. Pour one this out was like our, for our dead yeah, homies our, on the number three gun. <laughs> and this was our first, uh, this was our first, uh, Casualty. Our first actual character death, right? Yep. It's a first character death, and we got several other characters dying that are unnamed on, on gun three. Yeah. Uh, from the cannon crystal blowing up. Yeah, so that makes me cool. think if we're gonna have if we're gonna get mention of Ericsson, that makes me think that it'll come up later in the book. What I imagined, so it's spelt like this. It's spelt A R I C S O N. So it looks like Eric Arkson, but then you you actually mm-hmm. say it out loud as Ericsson. So he must have a friend named Ericsson. He's like, dude, I'm gonna kill you in this book, <laughs> like right away. <laughs> That's what I imagined. Jim's just like, yo, Erickson, I haven't had you in my book yet, so I'm going to put you in there. You're going to fly out of a freaking hole and drop into the sky. (laughs) Anyway, so as soon as the Predator dipped into the fog, Grimm ordered evasive actions. So it's like he's going into the fog, and then as soon as they're in it, he's like, okay, Kettle, let's go. And then they're going (laughs) serpentine, serpentine through the air, trying to avoid any other fire from Itasca. You know, it's... It just shows that. So you know, you got you got Grim. He's pretty stoic and tough. Uh, he starts to respond when he sees Itasca. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm ballsy, but I ain't that ballsy. He's like that kind of stuff. F that, we out, dog. We out, and we're gonna use all the ship's maneuvering abilities right now. So this is from the book. Kettle turned the steering grips hard as the cold mist enveloped them, and the ship slalomed lower into the mesosphere while Grimm waited for the next round that would kill his ship and his crew, forcing himself not to hold his breath. All the while, Predator sang her defiance to the mist, the cord shifting and changing with each alteration of her course, and the sound drifted up behind them like mocking laughter. So I like that because he's doing another dive. So we're getting another song from Predator, except this mm-hmm. time, since he's doing the maneuvering, it almost sounds like, ha, 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 like you didn't get me, you know, kind of thing yeah, yeah. as it goes to the mess. I really liked that. It gives, like we were talking before, about before, personality to the ship. It's not just a ship. It's not just a cool ass airship. It's Predator. And she's a character, too. You know, it's cool. After what seemed like a long while, Grim ordered Kettle to pull back, pull the ship back up. They were all, uh, they all breathed a sigh of relief after realizing the Itasca wasn't chasing them, because it was too big to pursue. 
Grim ordered damage control, made sure that the doctor had everything he needed, and announced that he would be in his cabin. Before he could go, Exo Creedy stopped him and pointed out a peculiarity. I can't say that word. Can you say it for me? Peculiarity. Peculiarity he noticed during the battle. Sir, Grim paused. The ship's shroud. It's extremely powerful for a vessel this size. The young officer hadn't actually asked a question, but it hung unspoken in the air between them. Grimm didn't like uh, prevocation. It complicated life. But though he thought the young officer was a decent enough sort, he wasn't ready to extend that much trust. Not yet. So he gave Exo a flat gaze and said, See to the ship, if you please, Mr. Creedy. So Captain Grimm has a secret. So he got some aftermarket shroud tech on this ship. So basically what happened there in that little scene, and you could pass over it, it's not a big deal. But Creedy comes up and is like, uh, Captain, um, we just survived a salvo from not only Itasca, uh, but also, uh, what was it called? Furious? Um, what was the ship called that just popped out? Itasca. No, it was Itasca. Okay. We don't know what the other ship was called. But yeah, that was uh that was a that is a big deal, right? Like I, you know, it's it's funny because you and I talk about this podcast all the time. Well, why do we do this podcast? For exactly what you just pointed out because you know what, bro? I never thought of that. I never even picked up on that. And I read I read I'm telling you, I you read, read it. every page yeah. of this. I never even thought of that. But yeah, he's basically low key saying, uh, dude, what is on this ship? Yeah. He's like, I've been on ships, dude. You know. It took the firepower of two ships to break the shroud of this dinky ass. Of this little dinghy. Basically. You know? So what is going on? Yeah. So uh, once in the safety of his cabin. So he's got a secret. So we like that. That's what makes this book a good second read, too. So this is my second time reading this book or listening to it in Audible. And um, it is a nice, like you get to see these things as they play out. And it's, it's really entertaining how he's dropping these little secrets that, like you said, you didn't pick up on. It'll, you know, it'll pay off later if you, if you picked up on it. And if you didn't, you'll figure it out later anyway. It doesn't matter. So it's cool. Uh, once in the safety of his cap, a cabin, Captain Grimm began to let his body run through the adrenaline and the sick he felt. He beat himself up pretty bad about how he had lost men and vowed silently to the ghost of his crew that he would not, under any circumstances, make that mistake twice. Some time passes, and the next scene begins with Creedy heading into Grimm's cabin, now feeling normal. Uh, Grimm is feeling normal now. He's kind of calmed down and everything. Creedy starts out by saying that he thinks Captain Grimm's skills has been unappreciated back home. He cites the fact that Aurorans dispatched the Itasca for a lone privateer uh, is a compliment. So the you know we're on the Albion merchant ship Predator, and Aurorans had, as we saw from the last chapter, had pulled out their um, diplomacy place. I forget what it's called again. Um, you know what I'm talking about when you open up a diplomatic like building in another country. Yeah, um, uh, I can't think of it. When you're uh, in another country and you need embassy, to see embassy, embassy, embassy. that's it. So. Um, the Aurorans had pulled out their embassy, so now we're kind of in soft war. We're at the beginnings yeah. of it. And so sure. the fact that the Aurorans dispatched the Itasca, the battle cruiser, for a lone privateer to, to set up as a trap just for Predator was quite the compliment, according to XO. 
uh, and Grimm's size. Exo continues by stating that Grimm had been a, had Grimm been a fleet captain in the actual Albion um, military, that he would have merited honors for escaping such a perfect attack. But then he gets embarrassed remembering who he's talking to. So Exo's like, "Oh yeah, I shouldn't, I shouldn't bring that up." Grimm tells Creedy that there are far worse things than being drummed out of the fleet. Then asks for the battle report. Five dead, six wounded from mostly shrapnel injuries. The dorsal mass will need replacing. They had to cut away the dorsal web. There's a hole in the gun deck, which will require a shipyard to repair. And they blew two cables in the suspension wig, which we will uh, get a description of its importance to the ship here. The suspension rig was the central structure of the ship, built around the main lift crystal. The weight, uh, the weight of the entire ship hung suspended from the rig and it was distributed through its cables. There were eight of them, and two, and any two were enough to bear the weight of the entire vessel. But the more cables that broke, the more likely it was those remaining would break, especially during any high-speed maneuvers. The loss of the occasional cable was expected, but never taken to be lightly. So uh, we learned a little bit more about the ship, and two of those uh, very important suspension cables have been broken. The worst news, however, was that Chief Journeyman reported fractures in the main lift crystals. For the meantime, Journeyman cut power to the lift crystals and diverted the energy to extra trim crystals to make up for the difference. Grim cursed, knowing the fractures were caused by a second dive command so soon after the first. We then get some explanation of trim crystals that they are expensive and hard to come by. There was no prize money on this trip and no bounty, so coming up with the funds to repair was going to be... Uh, another issue to add to the growing list of Grimm's problems. He decided that they will have to replace it, and hopefully Fleet will put in a good word with the Landcasters. So now we have a potential connection between Gwen and Grimm. Ooh, making a little connection. Yeah, it's like, like hey, Fleet, uh, you know, I effed up one of the uh, Roaring Vessels and escaped Itasca. I need need some crystals. Can you talk to the Landcasters for me? So while discussing how best to set course... Back to Spire Albion, the pair hear something outside. A low groaning tone rumbled through the cabin's portal. After several seconds, it rose higher and higher and higher into a kind of distorted whistle and then faded away. Creedy stared out the portal and licked his lips. Sir, what was that? Or was that? And then Grimm says, Mist Maw. Yes. Um, isn't that a danger to the ship, sir? Swallow us whole, Grimm agreed. They aren't usually aggressive this time of year. Usually, Grimm shrugged. If it decides, I read this. I read this in how I thought they would be speaking. Yep. If it decides to come eat us, we can't stop it, Exo. Our pop guns will only make it angry. Exo Creedy correctly decides to cut power to the web and reel it in. Grimm says that he suspects Journeyman had probably already done that after the dive, and tells Creedy to go unfurl the sails, that they will spend the night moving with the wind, and come up sometime tomorrow, hopefully where Itasca won't be waiting for them. The chapter ends with the sound of the mist maw vibrating through the cabin. It will be a long night of quiet. The sooner they get back to Spire Albion, the better. So, what do you think about the chapter? That was chapter two. There was so much going on in this chapter. It was a learning chapter for sure. And I just found myself thinking, holy shit, holy shit, 
holy shit. Yeah. It was, you know, it, there's a lot of information here, but Jim does this in such a way that he keeps it interesting. It doesn't become an info dump. We learn a ton about the world. We get some new creatures and you get this like low key feeling that Grim doesn't really fuck around. He's, he's kind of a, is bad boy the right word? Oh, he's so such a bad boy. He is though. Like, you know, he's just the stoic captain. We got some black market tech on the ship. Yep. Like that ship should have been smoked. Yeah. It should have been donezo. And uh, well, he's smart so too. Really... Even though Creedy is on his ship for a short, short amount of time and Creedy is like, you know, his friend's nephew or whatever. Yeah, he's not yeah, going to yeah. tell Creedy yet about what's going on in his ship. He's a yeah, privateer. He's not going to share all that. He's going to teach him what he needs to know. He's trusts him, but he's not going to lend out that kind of information. He's not going to give him the keys to the kingdom in the other no. words. But uh, I really like, I like the back and forth. I like when they did the ripple firing. Yep. That was, I found that very interesting. Cause I'm thinking, dude, how are they going to take down this ship? It's, it's far superior. And it was cool that there's like this little technique that a weaker ship could severely damage a much stronger ship. But then once Itasca shows up, you can even see Grim is like, nope, we're out of here. Out. We're not doing this. And we then even died. when you think you're now you're kind of safe, you're still on the run from Itasca. Then you hear the yeah, mist yeah. maw. So we get, like yeah. you said, a creature. It's a really cool way to end the chapter. And it also shows some more of Grim's character being a, a badass because he's like, mm, they don't, they're not really usually hungry this time of year. So he rolls with Miss Sharks. Not not saying that he does it on purpose, but he's not afraid to, like, you get the feeling that this is either saying he didn't realize the Miss Mom was going to be there and it is what it is. So that's kind of a devil may care attitude, which is cool. But he's also, like, knowledgeable of the region. And maybe Predator has rolled enough in this area where the smell of the hall doesn't bother the mist maw or maybe you know what i mean like it's like it's like a familiarity thing wasn't there a mention of that they're attracted to those etheric fields those, oh, those right. shield fields yes and since they didn't have theirs up because they put up the they put up the sails or whatever yep. and they went through quietly he wasn't too worried about it yeah because exo was like yeah i think i should turn off power to those and um they he's like already. he's like yeah journeyman's are probably already done it but you can check anyway. Yeah. So I like get the, how get the sails up. Let's go quiet. I like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that too. Um, yeah. Everything we just talked about is what I have in my notes. So now we cool. move on to chapter three. So this chapter uh, takes place in Spire Albion, Habel Morning, Tagwin Vattery. So now we got a new location in Habel Morning, in that city. This Habel Morning. This chapter, this is what this chapter had me doing. The, the podcast, people won't be able to see it, but you're going to be able to see it. This was my reaction when I read this chapter. Face palm. Well, because here's the thing, dude. When we start the book, our Gwen, our land cat, our, yeah, Gwen, I immediately liked her. Yep. She's cool. I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I like this girl. She's got good attitude. She's strong. She's, she's stable. She can take care of herself. And when we meet Bridget, Wah, wah, wah. Oh my god, and I'm just like and he really drills it too. Oh, he does. And I'm just like all I could think to myself was I know that these two female leads are going to come come face to face and they're going to have to work together and I'm just like, uh 
You gotta have it. You gotta have the ensemble. Uh, this is me. I was just like, uh. yeah. It it is kind of a bummer coming right off of of such a badass chapter with Captain Grimm. Like you got yeah. a badass female lead in Gwen, leading to a more badass captain in Captain Grimm with the experience. You know, you got Gwen who's the up and comer, ready to take on the world. You got Grimm who's seen the world and ready to take down what he needs to 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 get his. And then we get introduced to Bridget who's from the Vattery to make sweet meats. I just want to sit here and, meet, and make meats all day, Father. I don't yeah. want to go fight in the service. Could I stay here with my kitten? Could I pet my kitten, Father? So let's learn more about it, shall we? Chapter three, summary. Bridget well, sat- well, well, well. <laughs> Bridget bitched for five pages and I wanted to die while reading it. <laughs> End of chapter. And then we meet a really cool cat. Yeah, there was a cool cat. <laughs> Bridget sat in the dim vaults of the vattery, back in the shadowy corner where the cracked old vat had been removed. She wedged her back against the corner and held her knees up close to her chest. She was cold, of course. The chamber was always cold. She noticed only when she paused to think about it. She lived too much of her life in this room for it to be truly uncomfortable. Bridget, <laughs> actually, I said that wrong. Bridget called her father's deep voice from the entrance of the chamber. Bridget, are you back there? It's time. Bridget hugged herself harder and pushed a little further back into the corner. The rows and rows of vats scattered the sound of his voice, sending it bouncing all around the chamber. She leaned her head against the cold, reassuring solidity of the cinderstone wall and closed her eyes. This was her home. She did not want to leave her home. So if you're following along in the book, it's on page 34 at the beginning of chapter 3. What I do like about this um, is how Jim Butcher specifically writes the lines about Bridget not wanting Bridget not wanting to leave home, and I'm going to pull it up for the uh, the YouTube audience here, the visual audience. I'll pull up the book here. I have it highlighted so we can see what I'm talking about. So um, what I like about it is instead of making it two sentences next to each other, he makes them their own paragraphs or whatever, and they're short. So when when she said when he uh, when he says, this was her home, she didn't want to leave her home. Why not make that just one sentence? I'm asking you that as a writer now. So now we're going into like, well, let's discuss this. Yeah, you know, dumb character, but let's talk about this writing style here. What is that? Well, I think it's a way to add extra attention to something, right? That's how I, that's what I would do. Okay. It's it's the same thing as saying, if you have like a one word paragraph, or it's like when you say, um, he couldn't quite put his finger on what was bothering him yet. Yet. Okay. You know, it's like doing it like that, right? It's a, it's a very... It's hammering the point home in a it, dramatic way. It really way. is. It really is. Like, okay, yeah, this was her home. She, she did didn't want, want to leave. leave her home. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's hammering home importance. Two different things. This was her home, and she doesn't want to leave but they're both very important to her and they're both important to the writer. And the the writer wants you to pay extra attention to that. Like she does not want to go. What do you think about that as a writing technique? I do it all the time. Sweet. Yeah. I, I looked at it and it just kind of looked weird. And I, I couldn't even think of the way, you know, in my mind I said, Oh, okay. He indented twice, but that's actually just straight up a new paragraph. That's its own paragraph. Is that what that is? Is that what you call that? Yeah. Okay. So I was just like, I was kind of uh, surprised by it, but it was effective, obviously. 
So we are introduced to a new character, Bridget of Tagwin Vattery, where they specialized in making vats of meat that produced the best in Habble Morning. She is perfectly happy with her lot in life as she sees the production of fine meats to be an honorable and worthwhile duty. House Tagwin was not one of the high houses of Habble Morning, like Lancaster's. In fact, she lived no better than anyone else in the city. However, her father was a high-ranking fleet admiral uh, who was well-respected in Spire Albion, and that came with a price. Bridget's responsibility to tradition, to the tradition of spending one year in the service of, of the Spire Ark, felt unfair to her, but mostly she was scared. Then we get introduced to another character. There was a rustle. Uh, there was a rustle and a very light thump, and she looked up to see one of her favorite people bound lightly from the top of the next vat, land in silence only a few feet away, and sit down, regarding her with large green eyes. Good morning, Raoul, she said. The dark ginger cat purred and greeted and padded over to her. Without preamble, he climbed into her lap, turned a lazy, imperious circle, and settled down, still purring throatily. Bridget, I love that word too, throatily. It really encapsulates what a cat's purr is like you know i have a i have a my best friend's cat does that very very loud very guttural it's like a yes, machine very, gun yes yes there it's so awesome so cute bridget smiled and began to run her fingers lightly around the base of raul's ears his purr deepened and his eyes narrowed into green slits she starts confiding into in raul about her concerns with which include not owning a gauntlet or a sword, not having enough money to acquire one, and even if she did, she wouldn't know how to use it. While she talks about what she will miss when she leaves, Raoul is attentive, if only for more head scratches and belly rubs. You would think this is just a regular cat, but then on page 36, we get a surprise response from Raoul. So like the way he's writing this cat straight up is just a cat, you know? And you don't think anything of it until... After a few moments, the cat murmured, Little mouse, you are squishing my fur. Bridget jerked guiltily and sat up, this loosening took, her this embrace. This took me a moment. Oh, this took she me a moment to realize. Oh, she apologized. Please excuse me. The cat turned to meet her eyes, and he, his seemed to consider that for a moment. Then he nodded and said, I do. Thank you, Bridget said. You are welcome. The cat flicked his tall or his tail back and forth a few times and said, Wordkeeper wishes you to leave his territory. It isn't that he wants me to go, Bridget said. He thinks it's important that I do so. Raoul tilted his head. Then it is a duty. That's how he sees it, Bridget said. Then there is no matter for consideration, the cat replied. You have a duty to your sire. He has a duty to his chief. If he has agreed to loan one of his warriors to his chief then that warrior should go. I love how we are introduced to Raul. We think he's a cat, which he is, but he's also so well-spoken. So at first I thought it was just a part of Bridget's character. Like maybe she had a very imaginative personality, you know? Yeah. And so she was like anthropomorphizing the cat, you know? But Raul's Mm -hmm. talking style is so different from Bridget's style that it made me believe it after a few sentences. I also like how it seems like he has given names to Bridget and his father. He calls yeah, he her like Little Mouse. Him. He gives her yeah. titles. Little Mouse and Word Keeper. You know, mm-hmm. so it's like, uh, yeah, I like that. What did you think about the reveal that Raul is uh, a talking cat? Is this well, too like, cheesy? Is this like where you're no, jumping off? or? No, 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 no. I, I see, dude, I like fantasy, right? I can get behind it. But I, I was just reading it and I'm like, 
what <laughs> talking cat really but is it let me ask you this then is it any crazier than a, a ship floating in the air on some magical crystal energy? No, nope. seriously, no, seriously. Like it's not any crazy. It's like than, all right. Is it? Is it any crazier than elves or dwarves? Wearing a, yeah, wearing a leather gauntlet with a crystal in it that can shoot a blast of energy to destroy a door. No, it's really not that far out there. You know, so I, I was immediately intrigued. I'm like, okay, what else can this cat do? Yeah. So Raul. <clears throat> Raul comforts Bridget in his own smugly annoying way and gets to the bottom of why she doesn't want to leave. She doesn't want to be alone. Raul uh, shares his wisdom as cat and leaves her in the dark room after their conversation concluded. Yeah. Uh, Raul's very stuck up too. He's like, of course I, of course I know what I'm talking about. I'm cat. And she's like, yeah, you are a cat. And he's like, cat, you know, yeah, I am a cat. I know everything, you know, Bridget gets up and decides that after all her father had done for her and her mother that had passed, she will serve, even though she's scared and she heads for the chamber door. Her father opened it before she could get, uh, before she could, and we get a look at him for the first time. Franklin Tagwin was an enormous block of a man, his shoulders almost as wide as the doorway. His arms were thicker than many men's legs, and the muscles sloped up to his columnar neck were like slabs of stone. He wore his white apron and his belt with a vatterist's carving knife. His rumpled hair was the color of bare iron and his eyes looked tired and concerned. I thought of you immediately. Thanks. I thought of you immediately with this character. Big so ass nice. boy. Wearing mm -hmm. a white apron. Taking up the whole doorway. Because I am an actual butcher in real life. And just full of love. Just full of, hey supportiveness and this isn't just some this isn't a pushover you know we learned right away you know from bridges complaining. he's a big deal he's a fleet admirable and not just any fleet admiral he's like really well respected he may not have the most wealth and stuff like that but he always does his best he always keeps his promises and if he can't do something he's going to try his darndest to do it so you think based on what Bridget's whining about in the beginning, that he's going to be this strict military dad. You know what I mean? You get those classic characters that are just tough. You get this introduction of him, of he's taken up the whole thing, whole room. And then what we get from him is nothing but support and pride that his daughter is going to be leaving. And I just love this character. Frankie was my favorite character of the chapter. So he tells his brave girl that her mother would be so proud of her and the two discuss her fears of serving, how she feels like she isn't brave enough and she won't know anybody and how she's not good at making friends. Franklin reassures her and is very supportive and obviously proud. So it's actually a relief to see such a sweet father figure considering that Bridget herself has described him as an overachieving, bloodthirsty fleet admirable, admiral. And we know now that it's just showing us how immature she is at this point and how this will be a sort of coming of age story for Bridget. Because she's saying, my father's just a bloodthirsty admiral. And in reality, he's just a boss. You know what I mean? So that's why I thought of you, bro. White apron, the whole shebang. Yeah. This was this was good. Yeah. I um I like his character, and the character does remind me of me some stuff like that with a friend of mine right now teaching them to drive and it's very much being supportive and you know you made a good turn you drove too fast you took that one too sharp 
slow down next time. Try this next time. I'm really proud of you. You're doing really well. Trying to give positive reinforcement, right? Trying to be that strong pillar and trying to be that upstanding example, right? Yeah, all so while I, holding I, a very high expectation yes. without coming out and saying, I have this high expectation. You just you know, know it. It's established, you know? You know, I'm disappointed in you because you're not as perfect as me or perfect as right. everybody that else. That doesn't come he's out. Not doing that. And he's not doing that, but he very well could be. I'll be really disappointed in you if you don't do this. You know, like that's not the way to do it. That's yeah. not the way to teach somebody. And I, I, I really like, I actually really like the way his character comes off. Yeah. So it, it, that's why I liked it um, too, because it, it, it shows you, it even shows you more about Bridget's character. Like I said, it shows her level of maturity at that point. She's just kind of yeah. having an outburst and it comes off as very childish, which I believe is the intention, you know? So before Franklin oh, yeah. sees his daughter off, he has one last request for her, a very important mission to watch over someone for him. So this is from the book. Wait before you read it. Yeah. This scene felt like anime to me. Yeah. Did I feel like it to you? Where it's like, before you go, I need you to look after someone for me. I choose you, Pikachu. Ro, <laughs> like that kind of it's Row. And he's like, hey, girl. <laughs> I am Cat. I just imagine <laughs> Raul as this sassy man. So her father spoke very seriously. Clan Chief Maul has decided that it is time for the Spire Arc to recognize his tribe as citizens of Habel Morning. Let's break that down for a second. <laughs> Because there's have no a cat. Yeah. So Clan Chief Maul. So um, and I forgot to read this part, the part before it, which is um, be- behind her father, two cats come running running down, and one of one of them is Raul, and one of them is this Clan Chief. And um, so we now have established just by them, by the father talking, even though it's telling, it's also showing us that there are clans of cats. And this specific clan, uh, his chief is named Maul. And Maul wants to build up um, some, I don't know, political clout or something. Street cred. And so that's where we're getting this. So if you are lo- if you were lost, basically, Raul's part of a clan and the clan chief is sending him off. Clan chief well, Maul, go ahead. Nope, go ahead. We'll you're... finish it and we'll discuss like why or how or the back end of it. Clan Chief Maul has decided that it is time for the Spire Arc to recognize his tribe as citizens of Habel Morning, which, to his way of thinking, obviously means that his line is no different from anyone of the other high houses. As such, he acknowledges his obligation to detach a member of his family for service to the Spire Arc. I offered you to Raoul as a guide to help him learn the way of the Spire Arc warriors. Bridget blinked for a moment and then felt her face turning up into a wide, wide smile. Wait, are you saying, are you saying that Raoul's going with me? No, Raoul said smugly. You are going with me. It is much more important <laughs> that way. <laughs> so the the chapter kind of concludes with a kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge yeah. moment between Franklin and Bridget and Raoul where Franklin reiterates how important this duty is for the sake of House Tagwin's good relation with Chief Maul and his clan. Bridget holds out her arms to Raoul, and he leaps up and settles into her, Raoul's purring reminding her of one of her mother's lullabies. 
So what were you going to say about this, this kind of dispatch of Raoul from the clan? Well, I think it's really important, right? Because this is like, okay, let's forget about everything we know about humans, because uh, as the dominant species, it's kind of unfair because we always write about ourselves. So let's just forget that humans are the dominant species. You have cats basically saying, you know what? It's time for us to be recognized. So this is a big deal. Like this is a big step. Yes. I, yeah. I think so. You picked on that and picked up on that very well. Cause uh, the first time I read it, I did not pick up on any of this, just that there was a talking cat and yeah. okay, there's an extra cat. It was just confusing. So I just kept reading. And if you read that way and you didn't get it, that's fine. That's why we're doing this podcast so we can discuss this stuff. But I didn't understand it until this second read. And um, you're right. The Spire arc is uh, the head of Spire Albion. And um, he requires of the, the high houses of the Spire to send people to serve in the military. And like you said, um, uh, Chieftain Maul, the clan leader, is like, hey, cats haven't been getting their fair shake. This is going to be an important thing to to get our first uh, to get recognized as an actual clan, um, as a high house of Spire Mor- or um, of Havel Mornet. And so sending Raul is important for that. But what I kind of get in my little canon fantasy Dan world was Raul had talked to Bridget, saw how concerned she was, went back to the clan leader and said, okay, she's leaving. Um, this could be an opportunity for both of us to get something good out of this. She needs a guide. She needs someone to help her out. And this could be an opportunity for us to gain some clout with Spire Arc. What do you think? And Maul's probably like, yeah, let's do it, man. You're the one for yeah. the job. So I kind of like that. You don't know how cats think. And yeah, it's it was cool. I liked how that uh, that happened. So we get two more main characters, one of which is a very well-spoken cat. And we are introduced to a cat clan chieftain. And we learn more of what the other uh, houses of Spire Albion do. So like Lancasters do crystals. Tagwins do battery stuff there's other houses as well that were mentioned in the chapter that are like uh competition you know just like having a store and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um it's cool so it really builds the world some more we it yes it's a whiny character to start out but it has to be that way in order to establish her you need to see this character grow yes because if bridget doesn't grow i do not get behind her as a reader she needs to grow and develop as a character. She needs to make me say, you know what? She pissed me off at the start, but now I'm Team Bridget. Like, I want to say that to you. Five, six, seven, eight, ten episodes from now when we're reading through this, I want to say I'm Team Bridget, dude. I want to see her succeed. Yeah. I like that, too, because the first two main characters we get, Gwen is a badass chick. Yeah, it's going to be a coming-of-age story for her to become more mature and stuff, but she already knows how to fight. She already knows how to use uh, she knows the way and using the gauntlet. So it's like, you know, this is the way the character development for her is going to be more of learning Working to work with, with other others. people yeah. that aren't as good as her. Maybe Grim is kind of the opposite of that, but he is already, you know, Superman, but he is running a ragtag crew. He's probably, you know, on the retired part of his career, you know, in a sense. And it's like, how mm-hmm. does he, um, as a small fry, uh, 
live in a world that is about to go to war or something like that? How How is he going to, you know, we know he's a, a competent person. So his growth is probably going to be more of uh, deciding to come back into the fold of the fleet or something like that. You know, like something where he's going to have to work with Spire Albion as opposed to just being the privateer that he's been enjoying for however long it's been since he's been in the fleet, you know? Yep, and it, sure. and we get the we get the hint that he was actually drummed out of the fleet anyway for doing something. So, um, you know, it's like we're gonna learn about his past a little bit too. Now we get Bridget, and so this is the character where we're actually gonna. This is your your generic, you know, farm boy goes off to save the world kind of quest line. So we're getting we're we're assembling all the party members, and I just hope there's a tavern, you know, where we can. Start rolling, dun, rolling dun, initiative. Gotta have the Avengers theme song for when they all yep. assemble in the inn. So that's gonna do it for Jesus chapter Christ. two and chapter three. Next week we'll try to read it. the next two. I liked it, dude. I thought this was good, man. Like this was it's solid, it's a, dude. Oh, it, it is. Like I told you, I've talked to you behind closed doors about this book a few times. I don't give a damn about steampunk, dude. Mm-hmm. And I some of the stuff just doesn't do it for me but the writing is so good the description is there the action's fun and yeah the characters whether they're whiny strong or stable are interesting and it has me it has my attention to the point to where i even read further than we had to read for this week dude like, that's awesome how many t- how many times have i done that man zero yeah because we've only it. done one I'm, other book <laughs> yeah i'm i'm liking i'm liking uh Aerodot's Wendless so far i really am yeah, it's cool. So, um, yeah, let's let's read the next two chapters for next week, and um, yeah, we'll, I guess we'll see you then. So, uh, thank you guys for. Oh, wait, we're not done yet. We got the um, story time corner here. Christ, we're not why done. Are we, doing this? we have why to do are we this. Doing this. So, Justin <laughs> told me that he's been writing some more, and we had I a have. little piece of that from last week, and he's got a little bit more, another scene to share with us. Do you care to sure. read it? Is that okay? I would be happy to read it. I'm going to give you some background on the scene first. And I do want to read the full scene because I actually I actually really, I, I think it's pretty decent. So uh, the background for the scene is we have Isaiah. He's working in the shipyard. He's bringing ships into the docks. And there is a captain on a small vessel. He comes in and he tells him something like, my ship better not hit that dock, boy, or it'll be your ass, you know, something like that. He throws the ropes down to Isaiah and Isaiah pulls on the ropes and they pull right off the ship and the ship crashes into the dock. So wah, that's the wah, setup. Wah. Yeah, basically. Whoops. So that's the setup for this. Uh, you fucking cunt! The captain shouted, stomping his feet in the sand, making a scene. He motioned to the boy and reached for a blackjack, a blunt short club at his side. Duh! fuck did I say to you? Isaiah knew he should run from the situation. His legs, however, would not carry him. Slowly, he marched forward towards his punishment. I said your lines were secured improperly. How is that my doing? The captain took a step towards him, but stopped at the water's edge. You touched them last. Therefore, it must have been you who slipped them free. Isaiah now stood at the shoreline. Me, I've nothing to do with your shite. Whap! The captain struck Isaiah across the cheek with the device in his hand. You insolent dog, watch your tongue. I sail for his majesty and the royal family, a far nobler cause than anything you could ever muster. He spit on Isaiah's cheek and placed the weapon back at his tool belt. He retrieved a knife. Tell me why I should fucking kill you right here. Isaiah thought, but no words would come to mind. 
The captain stuck the knife to the boy's cheek and pressed it hard enough to draw a little stream of blood. Last chance. Isaiah felt his heart stutter in his chest. He was going to die. And all because somebody else failed to at least do their job. He closed his eyes and prepared for the inevitable. Deep down, he always knew this was how it was going to end. No grand adventure, no great feats or accomplishments. Just a disappointment. Goodbye, he thought to himself. Commodore! An unfamiliar voice echoed from the other side of the harbor. I wouldn't recommend that. The captain pulled the knife away from the boy inside. He slowly turned to face the direction and saw the direction of the sound and saw a man in his mid-thirties with a longbow slung over his shoulder, a crossbow at his side, tool belt, and a sword in a sheath. He wore black trapper's pants, had a few spare metal traps hanging from his tool belt, wore an unbuttoned red and black square patterned vest that exposed his chest, along with a plethora of gold and silver chains that hung from his neck. Slowly, the man approached. Isaiah noticed he was chewing on a sprig of something, or uh, he couldn't quite make it out. He thought nothing more of it and was just grateful to be alive. The young dockhand took a few steps back to safety and watched the events unfold. You dare insult the captain of his royal majesty's fleet. The captain called to the man. They'll see you in the stocks for this, you old coot. The man retrieved his crossbow from his side pack. He pulled the string and loaded a small steel barb tip bolt from the belt. He kept walking and aimed right at the captain. You damn fiend, the trapper called out. Reveal yourself to me. Isaiah watched as the captain stopped and stood still. He didn't so much as shudder. Then Isaiah saw his hands move in an inhuman way. His legs and knees twist and morph into a hideous, quadrupedal, leathery, tan-skinned creature with bulging muscles and strands of black hair scattered all across its head. It let out a wild hiss that caused everyone within earshot to cover their ears and wince in pain. Everyone except for the trapper. Thunk! The crossbow let loose and the bar bolt dug deep into the grisly creature's shoulder. It, it reared back and let out a hiss again, and in a display of otherworldly strength, it leapt high onto the inn's shingled rooftop, staggered, nearly slipped, and then leapt away again into the heavy brush behind the inn. A few moments later, an ear-piercing hiss echoed in the far distance. The trapper refixed the crossbow to his pack and approached Isaiah. He stuck out his hand to greet the young man. Mason Black, a pleasure to meet you, lad. Now, this next chapter here is kind of what I'm calling a, like a setup chapter. Like, a, you know what I mean? It sets the scene for what's coming next. At the end, after the previous chaos at the docks, the aromas of roast duck and potatoes and a hearty vegetable stew were a welcome change of atmosphere. The Fifth Wheel Inn was home to all types of passerbys and not to mention a local stable, local staple of almost everyone who lived in the coastal village of Hale. Thick, white candles burned hot all around the inn, illuminating the quaint but noisy drinking area. Round wooden tables were scattered everywhere was subsequently, and subsequently surrounded by sturdy oak chairs a long black pine bar top hosted many more patrons drinking the night away and singing songs of cheer and adventure. Mason and Isaiah sat together at the far back of the room, each with a mug of ale and each with a myriad questions for the other. Isaiah lifted his wooden mug and motioned to the man. Thanks for earlier. I owe you one. Mason sipped his ale and licked away some of the foam. 
127, actually. He drank again. And that was how much that bolt of wounding cost me. He drank once more, if we're keeping track. Isaiah sighed and drank. Shit. Working in the docks, it'll take me near three months. Black smiled as a stout, bald-headed man joined them at the table and gave a tattered handbill to Mason. Mason looked from the handbill to Isaiah, then back to the bill, and then back to Isaiah. <laughs> but not as a bounty hunter. And that's our setup. What's a handbill? Is that like money? No, a handbill is like a, like, like a, it's like a. Oh, a bill. Yeah, like it's like a handbill, like a. Uh, like how much you picture. owe? Or like, no, it'd be like a bounty. Oh, okay. I. Bounty. That's I, why he says, but not as a bounty hunter. Okay, I I was confused because I thought a handbill was like it was like money or something like that, or the bill for the for the drinks. And he keeps on looking at Isaiah like you're gonna pay for this, right? Okay, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 because he's like so the scene, right? He's just like, oh man, working in the docks, it'll take me three months, and then uh, our character, he just kind of smiles as uh, someone else walks in, sits next to him, and hands him like a, a bounty, like a bounty handbill. And then he just kind of looks over to uh, Mason, looks over to Isaiah, and he's like, not as a bounty hunter, it won't. Ah, okay. Kind of something like that. So this is where he's coming to recruit Isaiah. So um, I like that. Can we talk about it a little bit? If you're comfortable with that, sure. Okay, so I want to go back to the, the dock side chapter a little bit. So there's a part. Okay, first of all, a lot of swears. Love it. Gives the intensity of the scene. Like some... There's no... I just, I'm not pulling punches in my writing anymore. I, I kind of used to censor that when I was younger. Yep. Don't do it. Letter, do letter buck. If we learned anything from Evan Whitmer in pages from the pizza crows, you yeah. could swear as much as you fucking want dog. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. So, um, there was something, there was a remark that the, the, um, the angry captain said to Isaiah, he says, tell me why I shouldn't fucking kill you right here. After yeah. he pulls out his sword, right? He pulls out a sword his or knife. his, his knife. knife. Okay. His knife. Yeah. So he's on a ship. He's a ship's captain. You know, I'm thinking, would you consider maybe, I mean, I don't want to change it for you because I know I'm a, I'm a bad, uh, I, I don't want to tell you how to write or whatever, but what if you did something that was more related to ships? Like, um, tell me why I shouldn't fucking gut you right here. Like a fish. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, or what you would do to a fish or scale you or something like that. Okay. Have you thought of that or? So you don't have all the background on okay. this creature that I just revealed to you yet. Yep. Um, that isn't even the captain. The captain is dead. Oh. So the creature that the creature that was just revealed was a changeling. Okay. So I didn't. I, that's why I'm. You didn't get that yet. You're gonna get it when our three characters are traveling together and tracking this creature. He'll reveal to Isaiah what that was. So the changeling killed uh, the captain took the ship, took the captain's form. And that was why when the trapper called out to him, he, he morphed back into what he actually is. Okay. All right. So then that's um, why I didn't have him talk like the captain. He can impersonate him, but he didn't really, you know, he doesn't really have the lingo. Right. Yeah. Okay. So then that's good. So that's why that's, then that's excellent because that's something that came out to me in my head about why wouldn't he say gut if he's a captain of a shit no i'll gut you like a fish you fucking yep. cunt no yeah, yeah he can he can get some of it but he's not going to get all of it i like that not, because then that's going to pay off on a reread when you're like of course he wouldn't say gut he's a freaking monster of the freaking forest or whatever you know yeah, you're changing yeah. well, that's yeah. cool okay 
Um, the next thing is uh, Isaiah noticed a sprig of something in the trapper's mouth. Um, dulls it dulls the trapper's senses because the trapper knew what he was up against, and when the when the creature hisses, it doesn't affect him because he can barely hear it anyway. Um, I was thinking of other ways to put it other than saying something. You know, a sprig. Okay, so is it is Isaiah noticing that? Or is that something that you want to describe as the trapper character while you're giving his description, saying that he's moving a sprig of exactly what it is, like whatever you come up with the idea of what it is, moving a sprig between his mouth like a toothpick? You know, it's yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that. It could almost be more effective if we get that directly from the trapper. But the main, you know, the main, the main visual, right, is being seen from Isaiah's point of view. Yeah. But, but, you know, at the same time, I don't think you're wrong. It could even, you could even just have Isaiah, I could even just have Isaiah notice exactly what it is. Well, you know. What I'm thinking of is, because you give the description of the trapper guy, right? Like you say, he's wearing chains or whatever, and Mm -hmm. he's two chains, you know, he's rich. Uh, no, he's exotic. He's exotic. Hey, hey, Timmy, two chains. Um, and that could just be added as a, um, a little. Yeah, and chewing a chewing a sprig. Chewing a sprig. Whatever. Yeah, like not not saying you're not telling what he's doing, but he, it's showing you can show his emotion in the moment of like him. Yeah. Going around. And that's. Go ahead. It is really good for writing, right? Because you can, I can. Add that I can change that around a little. Because that makes him a cool Isaiah. character. You know, that's like having yes. a character that comes up with a, a stogie lit. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I can take that out, right, from Isaiah noticing that. I can have it in the character's description. And then when we go on the adventure later, I can have Mason tell Isaiah, hey, look, I want you chewing on this at all times. It's going to dull your sen- It's going to dull your senses a little bit, but it'll make you immune to this creature's hiss. Yeah. So it won't affect you. Yeah, right? so that's what, yeah, because then it, that's then why it turns he him from being to it. like he's a he's a cool looking character, but then you realize, oh, it's not cool just to be cool. It's cool for a purpose, obvious you know? reasons. Yeah, there's a reason he's chewing on this sprig because it's going to temporarily dull his senses and it's going to make him immune to this creature's hiss. Allows him to get off a shot with his crossbow, wound it, get a blood trail. So now we have a tracking sequence. And I really like that the monster gets away. Uh, of course, because you could have easily just made him the badass trapper that comes out exotic guy bang he's dead it's like okay everything's good here folks you know but you made it Give so me that, some money yeah, yeah but you made it so it's like now we have potential danger in the area you know you don't know okay mm-hmm. so now we're watching to see how this trapper um reacts to it okay so then going to the uh tavern scene um you mentioned the local what was the local staple of the people of hail well the 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 the, the sentence was that it was um the the fifth wheel in which is where they are is a staple like oh ev- just about everybody goes there okay uh what, were, what was the sign here we go the aromas of roast duck and potatoes and hearty vegetable stew were a welcome change of atmosphere the fifth wheel in was home to all types of passerbys and not to mention a local staple of almost everyone who lived in the coastal village of hail okay i thought you were talking about a meal and i was going to recommend changing it from duck to roasted duck to leek soup in honor of <laughs> Bakwow. Bakwizzy. In honor of Damn sort it, of Edweir. No, but no, that... know, when it, I'm a discovery writer, okay? I consider myself a discovery writer. I like to write. I like to let my scenes develop. And 
as I was writing this, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I'll have him chewing on a sprig of something. It'll dull his senses, chasing the changeling. Changeling gets away. We have a scene in the bar where he recruits him because he needs a little help to take this creature down, cash in this handbill, get the money for it. They can split it three ways. And then I'm like, okay, what's he going to teach him on the way? What are we going to learn about? This stout character that shows up at the end of the chapter. What are we going to learn about Mason Black? What are we going to learn about Isaiah? You know, and are they going to work together in the future? Is this a one-off thing? What's going to happen? Right. Cool. So it gives me a lot of options to play with from the end of the scene. I like it. I think I think that was fun. That was good. Thanks. Thanks for giving me a chance to share and giving me a chance to express some creativity, Dan. I appreciate that. I, I love talking about that stuff. It's always fun. Um, so thank you for joining me, Justin, and I appreciate that you were willing to share that with the audience. That's really Always. cool. So uh, tune in next week. Get, read a couple chapters, guys, and um, yeah, we'll do probably chapters uh, four, and five. four and five. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for listening to Random Book Club Podcast. Check you next time.